go ahead and get this out of the way right up front. I did like this film. Even on rewatch. Although, this is definitely an example of a net positive scenario because... Well, because this film has issues. <laughs> so, if, if that's enough for you to leave, then I totally understand. Uh, there is some behind-the-scenes stuff I want to talk about. But ultimately, I'm going to talk about two of those things as we go, rather than right now up front. So instead, let's just, let's just jump into the movie proper, shall we? So, we start off with a flashback. This flashback does some good stuff. It establishes exactly how bad Tony was back in the day, prior to the way he is now. He is rude, crude, womanizing, and frankly, a troll. The thing he does to Killian is actually quite unpleasant. In fact, it's probably one of the worst things I've seen him do with regards to past Tony. We also see Ho Yinsen. That was actually nice to see him. Made me sad for a minute. And then, well, and then he, he bails. He bails on her, and he bails on him. Now, the funny thing is, her getting, you know, following through on this makes a degree of sense, if not the amount of time. Killian, well, we'll talk more about him in a minute. So, we get back up to the modern day stuff. It's like, alright, here we are. I'm trying to get this homing tech thing. Now, the first thing I want to say about that is it actually makes a decent amount of sense to me, having this kind of homing in on me tech. It's actually funny because he basically abandons this after this in favor of other kinds of tech. The remote control tech, as well as the, you know, the nano suit tech. I, I just want to bring this up in brief, though. There's a couple of times where I'm going to try not to spoil other movies, but things will occur to me re-Home, Spider-Man Homecoming and Infinity War with regards to this film, so. Anyways, so then we see Ben Kingsley, who is playing the Mandarin. Now, I want to say this right up front. I think he was an inspired choice for this role, because Ben Kingsley is an amazing actor. I've spoken of many different types of actors over the years, but... In my personal opinion, the actor that is at the top of the list is the one who is really, really good in a wide range. Some people are very good actors at specific types of roles, but they can't really go outside of that bracket, at least not well. Kingsley and other truly amazing actors are the ones who could play whatever. And I, I think Kingsley just absolutely nails the terrifying update to the Mandarin as this terrorist crime lord who calls himself the Master. I also want to say, I do like the look of the Iron Patriot. It's actually almost a shame they got rid of it, uh, especially considering what happens with the Accords in... Uh, I guess that'd be Civil War, which would be Phase 3, wouldn't it? So we'll not be covering that you know, in this block. But, you know, the Iron Patriot's cool. I'm with it. I do like Tony and his ability... So this Tony, the Tony who's grown, the Tony who's been through all the stuff we've seen in, in the previous two films and in Avengers, is definitely someone who, who gives a damn. I mean, he flat out comes out to Rhodey and like, look, I, I want to help. I want to take care of this situation. I want to break this down. Please, please help me. Help you. Help me. You know, what can I do to stop this guy? And the best part is, Rhodey's response is nonsensical to me. Rhodey effectively says, this is a military thing, not a superhero thing. You're a superhero. Go deal with superhero problems. I don't think I agree with that. Now, I do agree with that to an extent. In fact, I think actually that division between the kind of stuff that, you know, normal... Such a weird word. Normal people deal with, and the division of kind of stuff that the superheroes deal with, I think that division should exist. 
uh, not just in terms of storytelling, but from a legal, governmental kind of perspective. Uh, this is, of course, well before the Accords become a thing, but you get the point. But I think that as of the point where the movie starts, the Mandarin, as they know him, has shifted forward enough to be something that, I mean, come on, get Tony involved. Especially since he's volunteering. If nothing else, you don't need the Iron Man suit. Stark has access to tons of tech, and, lest we forget, got a nice peek at S.H.I.E.L.D.'s data and systems back during the Avengers. You remember that, right? This brings me to, and I'm going to mention this here, even though it really occurs to me later more, what is actually probably one of the biggest flaws of this film to my mind, and I know that's going to sound weird. Where the hell is S.H.I.E.L.D.? I can kind of excuse the other Avengers not being here. That makes a degree of sense. This isn't really that huge scale of a problem. But Tony Stark did nearly just die, which would, A, get the other Avengers' attention, and B, definitely get S.H.I.E.L.D.'s attention. Where the hell is S.H.I.E.L.D.? They're not even mentioned. Well, no, that's not true. They're mentioned like twice in the entire film. Once when he was using their database to figure out what happened with the bombing that hurt uh, Happy. And I don't remember the other time. But, you know, this is, of course, the problem with something like the MCU. And I'll discuss that more when we get to Age of Ultron. No, really, I do have an entire speech planned, and I'm kind of building up to that. So we'll get to that later. Regardless, the absence of continuity here is kind of bothersome. Then he has a panic attack. This is my second biggest flaw with the film. I've had PTSD. You could argue that I still have it from some of the stuff I've gone through in my life. I have known multiple people, personally, who have PTSD. Multiple of them are actually military vets because, you know, military side of my family and their friends, etc., Robert Downey Jr. is a good actor. He's not at the level of Ben Kingsley, but you know, he is still a good actor. And he does—he is t Tony Stark. He is Iron Man. I'm, I'm totally with that. But he, either he or the director or the writer do not know how to portray PTSD, because I just didn't buy his portrayal one bit. He basically just treated it as like, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he didn't lock up. He didn't, do, he didn't do anything else that would be portrayed as that. And I just I was kind of like, okay, whatever. Each time I was just rolling my eyes at its portrayal. And I, you might be like, well, why is that your second thing? Is it just because you've been through that? No, 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 no. It's because it specifically hurts the character growth of Tony Stark, in my opinion. Now, I'll talk more about this later, because this comes up later. But I feel like that, considering this entire movie is about the story arc he's been on since Iron Man 1... Iron Man 1, Avengers, and Iron Man 3 do form a cohesive trilogy for the character arc of Tony Stark. A character arc that actually continues into uh, Ultron, Civil War, and Infinity War, actually. And, and you know, possibly... Into... Okay, spoiler alert. I have not actually seen Avengers 5 or 6 or whatever. Infinity War 2, uh, Endgame. I haven't seen that yet. Because it's not out yet when I'm recording this. Give you an idea how far in advance I'm recording these. So I can't speak with that in mind because it doesn't exist yet. Point being, Tony Stark's character arc is hindered, in my opinion, by the fact that he's portrayed in what I can only call a Hollywood fashion. That's all I wanted to say about that. So Happy is running around pestering people. Complaints have got up 300%. Oh my gosh. And he's, he's just pissing off the interns and holy crap. He, badge. Badge, people, come on, you badge. Now, I get the, the fact that this scene is being portrayed for laughs. Like, he is, oh, he's so uptight and super tight about security. Uh, no, I'm, I'm with Happy on this. Completely, 100%. 
I want to make that very clear. He might be being a little bit of a dick about it, so I guess that's like 99% with him. But, I mean, I have worked places in real life where I needed my badge on me at all times. Not just to, to for sight or for people to see me, but to get through doors because they're electronically locked to these badges. And that's just at a data center. Never mind some, or, or at a graphics uh, production, or, excuse me, an engineering firm. Sorry, I was a graphics, I added an engineering firm. So there's no, like, the very thought of something like Stark Industries having that kind of basic requirement is like, yeah, <laughs> obviously your security is extremely lax. But there's another thought I had when, I, when they were going through these scenes. He mentions that, how do I phrase this? He mentions that he liked it ba better back in the old days, back when it was just, you know, women and, and the occasional bomb threat or whatever, and nothing was big, and now you're off with the, 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 hap, the super friends or whatever, right? And yet, by all portrayals in this movie, well, okay, now i got to bring up Spider-Man, but by, by his portrayal in this film and a couple other films, Happy seems more happy in a situation in which he is dealing with a higher tier of security threat. Like I just mentioned, the whole badges thing. He's kind of irritating in an everyday sort of a way, but when you get to real threats, he's useful. He does actually provide a critical clue and key link to the mystery in this episode. He is basically how Stark is able to connect the whole Mandarin to Killian thing, figure out what's going on with the bombs, and that they're not bombs, right? And all of that is because Happy decided to look up on something that he just had a hunch on, really. And that's kind of how I like Happy. The, the kind of everyday guy who's at least got the instincts and the drive to follow through on things that are high-tier threats. Not, not at the level of, like, you know, Thanos or whatever, but definitely on the level of the Mandarin. This is when I have to bring up Spider-Man Homecoming, however, because this is in literal total contrast to how he is portrayed in Spider-Man Homecoming with the vulture scene and, and the plane towards the end of the film. He's just like, yeah, whatever, put it on there, and sends it off automated. I can't even begin to buy that Happy would do that. Give me a break. I love Spider-Man Homecoming, don't mistake me, but really? Anyways, moving forward, then we have Killian. Adrian Killing shows up. Hey, I'm incredibly creepy, but in a, in a really sort of a quiet kind of a way. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just talking about how we spent years dodging allegations and legality of immoral research. Like you caught that line, right? Or how about the fact, here, I want to show you my brain. Or first I'll show you the universe. And then I'll show you my brain. This is how, this is, it's very beautiful, isn't it? I'm very pleased with it. You know, I'll talk more about Killian later, but all I want to mention about that is it's really obvious right at the bat, even if you have no idea who any of these characters are from the comics, which I'm kind of avoiding for obvious reasons. It's like, okay. And what I love about this, and this is what I like about Harry, okay, Harry Potts, well, Pepper Potts. Harry Potzer. <laughs> what I like about this is that Potts is portrayed as competent. She almost immediately looks at the situation and says, yeah, this is easily weaponizable. And no, 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 we're not doing this. We're not getting in on this. And Killian's like, yeah, okay. Now, what I like about that is that is, in my opinion, one of her key character traits, that she is competent, that she is capable of seeing through the bullcrap Lord knows she's had years of practice, and that she's capable of thinking long-term and very efficiently and, and professionally. That's one of the things I like about her character. Right before I recorded this, no joke, I actually took a bit of a break uh, from watching the film and taking notes on it. Went to have lunch with my sister. We were actually discussing Pepper Potts while we were there. Both of us agreed on this singular point. 
that there should have been more of her. I know Gwyneth Paltrow is, is an expensive actress, and that's part of the problem. But it would have been nice if we had had more of her in general. Because after this, we'll see like a brief snippet of her in Spider-Man. Um, and a little bit of her in Infinity War, and whatever she is in the other two films that have come out by the time you watch this. But that's it. Two cameos, basically. Where the hell is Pepper Potts? Anyways. <clears throat> Moving on. So then we go forward. Now, I'm actually... I have a note earlier that I skipped over because I wanted to bring it up here. He's talking about the homing tech and how logical that is. He also is really... Uh, dangerous is the word I want to use here. He just kind of starts practicing flinging solid chunks of metal at his body. That is actually dangerous. He nearly gets his head lopped off, basically, as, as a consequence of this. I found myself wondering exactly how bad his doctor's bills are, because holy crap. But more to the point, I'm not complaining, because that actually feels very Tony Stark, doesn't it? That he would just do it. The hell with the consequences. Just make it happen. Come on, let's go. And I've, I've got the money to just make it happen. That's very much his style, right? So that makes sense to me. But that, of course, leads me to commenting on another thing. The Mark, well, it's, I'm actually skipping ahead a bit, but the scene where he calls in, on, 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 while he is asleep, he accidentally calls in the Mark 42, which nearly attacks Pepper in her sleep. Now, that was actually a pretty good scene of the PTSD thing. Him, as he wakes up, completely disoriented, freaking out, and her just piecing out. I'm with that. And... The fact that he he could summon that makes sense. But my point is that is, again, a very Tony Stark thing. Very dangerous. It's just that danger is now to her, not to him. And it's probably why part of why that bothers him so much more. Immediately prior to that, though, we've got a nice long scene between the two of them where he is controlling the, the, the bot while he is doing other things. First of all, i just got to say, either there's some degree of automation there, and that, or that's Jarvis doing it, or... He has got an incredible amount of, of control for how he is doing it. Now, I've always mentally assumed that he's not literally controlling two bodies at once because generally the human brain just can't do that. And I know Stark technically has the brain cancer throughout his bones. Just ignore that for a moment. Point being, I like to think that Jarvis was the one basically moving the suit, since Jarvis is Iron Man, as we all know. And Tony was the one just talking through it while he exercised and tried to figure this stuff out. She's pretty pissed at him, understandably. But what he says is probably the best character speech he gives in the entire film, in my opinion. It's, 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 in my opinion, the best character moment in the entire film. He just is so natural and honest about it. It's like, look, I, you go to bed, I come down here and tinker. I, I can't sleep. I haven't had a good night's sleep in weeks. I, I can't get past New York. I, I can't do that. I've, and he just talks about how he's got to have, he's, there's this, all this power that I don't have in order to protect the only thing I want. And the only reason I haven't completely dissolved into insanity is because you're here. It is a wonderfully human, wonderfully natural, wonderfully amazing sequence. And I really, really like the way he portrays that a lot. So the next scene we see is actually extremely interesting and something that I feel is one of the critical components of the story, excuse me, the plot structure of the, of the entire film. One of the next things we see <clears throat> is Happy chasing after a random military guy. The first thing we see is his dog tags. Military. Boom. Okay. And we see creepy bald guy, who Happy has been following, interacting with him and saying, can you regulate? Yeah, I can regulate. Okay. And then Happy goes, is trying to figure out what's going on, steals one of the drug things, uh, 
gets into an altercation with Bald Guy. I know what you're saying. What's his name? You know, I don't think they ever say his name in the entire film, so I'm going to keep calling him Bald Evil Guy. Uh, You know what I mean. (laughs) So he has a fight with Bald Evil Guy, and Bald Evil Guy just goes, and sends him flying, right? Having reanalyzed the situation, I'm pretty sure that Bald Evil Guy just saved his life. Because he was then put far enough away from the blast to not be atomized and merely be severely damaged to the point where he might not recover. I just felt like pointing that out because I don't think I ever noticed that before. The interesting thing about that scene, though, I have an itch on my elbow. This is the weirdest thing. The, the thing I noticed about that scene, though, is, and this is why this is such an important scene, this, the, the mystery is given away right there to you, to me, the audience. As of that moment, we now know the totality of what's going on. Think about it for a moment. Adrian Killen, Killian is, talks about Extremis. We heard earlier Maya talking about Extremis in, in the flashback. Adrian Killian says this is about altering the human body, moving us to the next step of evolution, you know, engineering the, the mind and body and whatever, etc., right? Then we see a military guy who receives this drug which makes him go boom at the behest of Bald Guy. Then immediately after that, there's another video from the Mandarin saying, I blew up this place. All the mystery, well, oh, you see what, you'll get, we'll get there, but basically all the mysteries are given away within those three, well, four quick scenes. We now know Adrian Killian is working with the Mandarin, or for the Mandarin or whatever, that the bombings are not deliberate, or if they are, that they're part of some some greater plot, that he is using this extremis, and the extremis is giving them the superpowers, the heat stuff, which, if not properly regulated, can then explode. Oh, and Maya's in on it. All that information is given very upfront. This is very early into the film. Keep that in mind. So, uh, I'm looking at my notes here. Yeah, that's right. Tony then cares... One of the things I've always liked about Tony Stark in the films is that he's a good person. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but if you've read the comics, Tony Stark's not a good person. The Tony Stark in the film still has personality and character past good guy, but at his core, he is still a good guy. The scene with him in the hospital with Happy is probably one of the best scenes to establish that. Again, a very human scene. He knows that Happy's there. He mentions the badges. He mentions he's got his own security on the area. He mentions the, sh- the show that he likes to watch. The fact that Tony has retained all that information and cares enough to share it with someone who's taking care of him and cared enough to be there probably all night trying to watch after him, that speaks volumes. And it's one of the things I like about Tony Stark because he is the kind of person who it's not enough to say, I care. He wants to do, I care, right? He wants to actually take action. We'll talk more about that later, too. So, <laughs> Stark then, you know, is like, hey, I, I'm going to take your phone. Hey, I'm Tony Stark. This is my address. I'm waiting for you. Fling. Bill me. Yeah. And then, he, and then he puts on his glasses and he walks away from an explosion. Yeah. This is one of the dumber scenes in the film. <laughs> I've actually been speaking mostly positively about this film, outside of the the absence of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the PTSD thing, but I can at least skip over those. But this is probably the third biggest problem I have with the film right here. The fact that this whole sequence of events is nonsensical. 
first we're to assume that Tony Stark, Tony Stark's private residence, which hasn't changed, has somehow been private. Like him giving away his address means anything. You can look up where Arnold Schwarzenegger lives right now. That's a thing you can do. And Tony Stark has lived at this same place since before he was Iron Man. So he is definitely, people are aware of where he lives, right? So that's the first problem. Second problem, they give a very, very brief hand wave of this, but he has just given away his address and information and basically said, come at me, bro. Hello? Okay. He has basically just said, come at me, bro, to the Mandarin. Now, the... You would think, logically speaking, that if Stark was actually going to be potentially facing off against a nationwide terrorist agent, that he would have some kind of defenses set up, or some kind of precautions, or anything whatsoever. But instead, he's got literally nothing. Uh, in fact, later on in the film, we see multiple other things that he can and does do in order to defend those around him, including Pepper personally, as well as activating the whole party protocol, right? And yet he doesn't do any of those things. A helicopter manages to get within the range of him and actually shoot a missile at him prior to him being even aware of it. There's no sensor, there's no notification, there's no nothing. And the only suit he has active is a broken-down prototype. Now, we know why this is. It's because the whole point of the film is to basically pull a hero gets devastated, hero is at his worst moment, hero rises from the ashes. It's a very typical, very classical arc, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The problem is the Mandarin never really challenges Stark. Stark ruins Stark. Now, that could have been a good film, I would argue, that Stark basically destroys himself. But the only possible way this could be explained in lore is if Stark is so monumentally stupid that he doesn't bother to do anything to defend Pepper. And that, I'm bringing that point up very specifically because his focus on defending and taking care of her is a huge part of his character and something that he would never stumble on. Not taking her of himself? Yeah, I can buy that. Not taking her of her? Not a chance in hell. So I'm just going to chalk this up to what it is. Bad writing. So this plot hole happens. <sighs> whatever. And then, you know, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. There's a bit where he says, okay, I want all the FBI, CIA, and S.H.I.E.L.D. notes on the Mandarin. He starts going through it all. One of the things I do like about that scene, and it's a very subtle point, I bet most people didn't even notice it, is he comments on how the guy is basically portraying a lot of pageantry. And I like that because he immediately notices and dissects the fact that everything he's doing is a show. It is a show. He's just assuming it's a show for a terrorist, which I guess it is, but you get my point. Anyways. There's a really funny scene where Maya shows up, and he says, you're not the Mandarin. Are you the Mandarin? Are you? So... Maya was originally the Mandarin in the original script, and at a certain point in time, they decided to change that because women's toys don't sell well. There's some debate as to the, the validity of that statement and how true that is, but regardless, for whatever reason, Maya was changed from being the main villain to being a surprisingly significant character of this story who just then dies out of nowhere. Let me go ahead and say that I do think that was a mistake for reasons I will discuss later. Regardless. <clears throat> so... <laughs> what happens next is the missile attack... What I like about that scene is that what Stark does is extremely Stark, but also 
gets across the point of the plot hole I mentioned earlier. He actually is programmed with a suit to go on to Pepper to defend her. That makes total sense. The fact that he would pre-program that to, to be able to scan onto her and fix onto her or whatever. He, I don't know where she's getting the homing pieces in order to have it home in on her, but we'll, we'll ignore that little plot hole for the moment. <laughs> I guess that's a nitpick more than a plot hole, but either way. The idea that he would build a suit whose only purpose is to be able to, to remotely deploy and then immediately think to put it on her before anyone else, including himself, that's extremely Tony Stark. It is, of course, a prototype and barely functions. This is also kind of ridiculous in its own right, because, again, it's, it's so that he loses. So he loses! Woo! There's a scene that, when I was seeing this in the theater, uh, caused me issues. It's the scene where Stark is being dragged under by the cable. The idea of being pinned underwater by pieces of my own building in my own suit and basically unable to get out is actually incredibly terrifying to me. And that got to me. I could picture myself being in his situation there. Of course, Jarvis had his back. Jarvis pulls the arm off. Take a deep breath, sir. Pulls it back, drags him out, saves him. And then they go off flying for some reason. And that's never adequately explained, by the way, why they just kind of zoom off and do their own thing. Would this be a good time to question where Jarvis is? I mean, Jarvis is software, right? But where's he running from? Or are there multiple Jarvises, which is also entirely possible? I mean, I have multiple copies of Notepad, right? So I mention this because the Jarvis that's in the suit then mentions he's having issues because he's running out of power. Isn't Jarvis still integrated with the house? Is is there a proximity thing? Is there a coarse area where he is? Is he's basically in the cloud? If he's in the cloud, he would rely on... You know what? We're probably nitpicking too much. Let's move on. <clears throat> uh, this is where I mentioned in my notes the post-Avengers the post problem. See, here's the thing. And I will talk about more about this when we get to Avengers Age of Ultron. But this is really the problem when you have this kind of connected universe. It's the same problem I had with the Aquaman film that came out uh, about a year ago at this point. <sighs> Your point, not my, my point. It came out a couple months ago. The Aquaman film was like, oh my god, the entirety of all the Earth's coasts are being devastated by water. Okay, where's Batman? Or Superman? Or Wonder Woman? Or Cyber... You, you get the problem. When you have a interconnected universe like that, and you want to do movies about an individual in that interconnected universe, you kind of have to acknowledge the others. And that's a huge hassle. Because actors are expensive, especially on big-budget projects like those. So dropping the money to Cavill, Henry Cavill involved is, is just not feasible. That There's a logic to that. And this is the same problem here. They can't just have Chris Evans show up for a cameo, right? Even though he does in Thor 2. My point is, when you're having some kind of problem like this, the other characters should be involved. And we all just kind of accept that they aren't because, A, this whole interconnected movie thing is still relatively new. Ten years, uh, eleven years old, excuse me, as of this point in time. And B, well, uh, uh, feasibility? It's just aggravating to see how little the S.H.I.E.L.D. or the Avengers or anything else matters when it comes to the events of this film. But don't worry, that's going to get much more egregious over the next several films. So, um, I'm looking at my notes here, sorry. Uh, there's a really good scene. I'm kind of skipping forward in scenes, because a bunch happens that I don't have much to comment on. He meets the kid. He immediately deduces that the kid has a bully. 
he immediately deduces that the kid is an engineer, which he totally is. One of the things I like at the the ending is that he basically gives the kid a fully decked out engineering workshop. That's actually kind of awesome because he correctly identified that that's the kind of thing the kid would really love, and he gave him what someone like that needs. As I've said many, many, many times, if you're going to have a passion or a hobby or something you want to pursue as a career, the most important thing you need is the financial capacity to actually do so. It doesn't matter how much you care about or how much you are you know, how much you practice at you know such and such. If you don't have the tools or the money or the resources, it doesn't matter. You're you're locked out, right? So the idea of Stark being able to to give this kid those tools that's kind of awesome. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So he identifies this with the kid, and the kid is not bad. You know, I've seen worse child actors and worse child roles. There's actually a really good bit, though, where he says, he, he's trying to talk about the aliens, right, the Chitari. And then he says this line, are they coming back? And, and up until that point, every question he's asked of Stark has been, no, no, no. When he asks that question, Stark says, maybe. That's part of that character arc I referenced earlier that goes forward several films from now. And that is indeed part of the character arc that goes at least forward into Infinity War. The idea that someday the aliens will come back. They were already so big we could barely deal with them with a full team of superheroes. And that was like a, a small scout force, you know? What's going to happen when they come back for real? So that nightmare is going to be a prevalent part of Tony Stark's character arc. And I just wanted to point it out since I wanted it to be in your mind. Since it will come up at least once more, possibly twice more, in the upcoming films. So, there's a really, really good scene where the lady is pretending to be Homeland Security. And she comes in and tries to arrest Stark. Now the sheriff's there. In the bar. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been to Chattanooga. It doesn't look anything like this. But I do like this little tidbit here. Or oh, this wasn't Chattanooga. This is, this is someplace else. Anyways, point being, I like the, this because this is actually surprisingly realistic. Because she says, I'm Homeland Security. We good? And his response is, No. As a law enforcement officer, I'm going to need more details, ma'am. And that's exactly what he should say. And I like that. Any good cop, any good sheriff, will not just accept a badge being waved in their face. They're going to need some freaking info. So you want to go back, you want to call this one in, sure. And then I'll cooperate with you. But right now, you're just some chick waving a badge at me. And you're trying to manhandle someone in this bar. That ain't cool. I like that. And I just wanted to give credit where credit was due on that one. Then she decides to go crazy and kill everyone because I guess all ex-military people are evil. I don't know. <laughs> sure. There's actually a nice bit where the guy almost shoots her in the back and he has to cock the gun right when he's right behind her. It's the only reason she catches it. I wonder if she would have survived that because we see there's a different level of... Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, mastery over their extremists, which allows them to endure different types of things. Like, bald evil guy endures quite a bit in this very thing. She, however, does not come back from the explosion in the kitchen. Which, by the way, if you ever wanted to know why I like this portrayal of Tony Stark in a nutshell, it's the fact that, while handcuffed, he defeated an extremist agent by using his knowledge and the things around him. Because that is Tony Stark. We'll talk more about that in a bit, too. So he pushes the kid away almost constantly. Do you notice that? Does he do that because he's just a jerk? Or does he do that because he's trying to push away someone who not only could be hurt because of him, but already demonstrably has been hurt because of him? Remember, bald evil guy took him in to try and use him as a hostage, remember? <laughs> so...
there's a bit where you know the Mandarin manages to take over the entire television airwaves, which is is actually so stupid. Let's just move on past that. Let's, I do wonder what their explanation is for how Killian has the ability to take over the entire broadcast of of the world, but whatever. And there's this bit where you know the Mandarin Kingsley's so good here. He really is. He's I'm going to shoot this man in thirty seconds unless you call me. Go. And he's just he's so blunt about it. The moment I saw that scene, I knew he was going to shoot him. And I remember I remember thinking that in the theater. I remember being there like, oh, God, no. And I was sitting next to my sister, and she's just like, what? And, and I just, I'm doing this. And she looks over, and she's like, no. Because she then realizes what I'm, what I'm explaining or, or not saying. And she's like, no. And then, a lot, of, a lot of people in the theater, you know, physical jerk when that happened. It was just, holy crap. Just one more lesson. Nothing's going to stop me. You'll never see me coming. So, <laughs> Rhodey goes and starts trying to track down where this is coming from and is sent to multiple false alarms because, well, because that is actually semi-realistic. It's just too easy to bounce information even nowadays. But what I like is he's there and he's got these people at gunpoint. He's on the phone with, with Tony. It's like, what's, okay... War Machine rocks. That's all caps and with an X. The other guy laughs and just the gun just goes... <laughs> he immediately shuts up. As an aside, I actually really like Rhodey in this film, too. It's nice to see him do more. Uh, I wish we could see more of him as well, but whatever. Moving on. So, uh, then we have the Gary scene. This is kind of an interesting one. See, this is definitely set in Chattanooga. That's important because he goes and does a speed test on the internet in the van, and the speed test comes back bad. Did you know Chattanooga, Tennessee has some of the best and most highest rated internet in the entire country? It's act I'm not joking. You can look this up. It's something they're known for. I myself have actually considered moving to Chattanooga just because of the viability of their internet. No joke. I don't have any family or friends there. It'd just be, you know, good for the job, right? And it's a plot point in a film that they have bad internet and it needs to get it fixed. I, I do like the Gary. Okay, Tony needs Gary, and Gary needs Tony. <laughs> oh, I I have the I have the tattoo, but it's built off of a doll. It's just wow. I do like that inclusion. As weird as that may sound, as I mentioned back in my Iron Man two rumination, it makes a lot of sense that someone like Tony Stark is basically a superstar. He's, he's a celebrity at this point. So, the movie at this point tells us what we already know that the bomb wasn't a bomb, it was just an extremist person blowing up, and blah, blah, blah. Then, uh, Rhodey is trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, oh God, and he gets to a point where he is actually attacked by an extremist woman who disables his suit. How does she disable his suit? She shakes his hand and then tries to melt it a little bit with some extremist heat. The, to, I, I watched this scene twice. To my knowledge, they never explain how they just managed to disable the Iron Patriot. It actually aggravates the crap out of me, because the way the Iron Patriot acts is actually very inconsistent in the entire film, because she just disables it, and then it doesn't work for him, and then he evacuates it, and then they take it over and have perfect control of it, even when someone else is inside of it, but then the president has no control of it, but then Rhodey gets control of it when he gets it back. It's very inconsistent. The only part of that that makes any sense is the last part, because it would make sense that the Iron Patriot is coded to Rhodey. That it specifically responds to him. Remember, that was a plot point in Iron Man 2. 
that the suit that Rody got into has tons and tons of security checks that won't allow just anybody to walk in and use it. This is also explained earlier in this film, when Tony Stark feels comfortable enough to leave his armor open and out in, in the street like he's parked it as a car, because no one else can get in and use it. All of that makes sense, so why is it that they then have the ability to disable it, and control it, and control it remotely? Anyways, so then there's a scene which I really, really like. It's actually probably my favorite scene in the film, second favorite scene in the film. Uh, the kid's like, you're a mechanic, right? So build something. This is probably what I consider to be the most complex, well-written point that the story of this film, the theme of this film has. It's the idea that what you do doesn't matter as much as what how, why, when. In other words, that life is simply more complicated than a single bullet point. There is nothing wrong with Tony Stark slipping away to the mechanic shop and building stuff. The problem was he was doing that specifically to try and avoid everything he'd been dealing with, or rather hadn't been dealing with. The problem was how reckless he was being. The problem was how many issues he was pushing through. The problem was he was using it as an escape, not a solution. This moment when he realizes, I'm a mechanic, I just need to build something, is when he starts to realize that he can then use his talents and skill and money in order to do. And thus he starts getting better from that point on with regards to his PTSD. And I will admit, speaking personally, that kind of thing does help. Having an actual factual way to deal with the problem that causes your PTSD is definitely a help. So, he goes to a local tool shop, buys a bunch of stuff, and invades the mansion. And it's an awesome, awesome scene. I love it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to gush. I just love it. He's just, he just goes through. He's so efficient and quick and almost casual about it. Because, I mean, the man has been training for some time in, in, in far, as far as superhero knows. So this isn't exactly a new thing. <laughs> um, so... This also, if I may talk about Tony Stark for a little bit, this also kind of goes into the real thing he is having PTSD about. I mean, fighting aliens and going to wormholes and nearly dying in space, yeah, that's a big deal. The real problem was the helplessness. There is truly very little in real life that is more horrifying or more difficult to grasp than being incapable of helping those you love. It is a true form of suffering that, really, that word does not get across exactly how terrifying that kind of circumstance is. That is the problem Tony Stark has. They barely, by the skin of their teeth, managed the New York scenario. And that's the problem. As I mentioned earlier, they're coming back. There's going to be more. We need to be even more prepared than we already are to deal with this. That is what really is bothering Stark, and what will lead to his issues in uh, Ultron as well as uh, uh, Civil War, which I don't think we're covering for this block. I think that's Phase 3. Anywho, <clears throat> so after this really awesome scene, we hit the 1 hour, 15 minute, 9 second mark, and it's not the Mandarin! Okay, we're finally going to talk about this. I've been kind of avoiding this the whole film, because I wanted to talk about this here. Most of you watching me probably know about Mass Effect 3, especially if you watch this far. You know about Mass Effect 3. And Lord knows I can never seem to get away from Mass Effect 3. But here we are again. The reason I bring it up in relation to this film is if you sit down and talk about anybody, even, even someone who is a video game person who enjoys the Mass Effect series, if you bring up Mass Effect 3, probably the first thing that's going to come up is the ending. 
and it'll be one of the most things discussed, and for obvious reasons. But it was difficult for a very long time to find a discussion about Mass Effect 3, which there's a lot more to discuss there, good and bad, regardless of the ending. Then we have Iron Man 3, and you could probably already see the parallel I'm pulling here, because it was very difficult for a long time to find anyone willing to discuss this film without just immediately bringing up the Mandarin thing. Like, every comedy site, every analysis site, every comic book site, just everyone was doing the exact same thing. Oh my god, the Mandarin twist. As recently as just two days ago, I heard someone make a joke about Iron Man 3, and the joke was basically, oh my gosh, it's not the Mandarin. Right? So everyone was discussing this, and I found that to be a shame. It's one of the reasons why I didn't want to give this too much time. Because honestly, I'm not bothered by it. I get why it bothers people, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it bothering people, but it doesn't bother me personally. And there's two reasons why. First of all, it's because Ben Kingsley is amazing! Uh, how many other people can play a, a fop, a, a drugged-out acting fop, and also play one of the most terrifying portrayals of, of this kind of a villain I've seen in film history? Like, this is just, wow! I'm sorry, I'm a huge fan of Ben Kingsley, if that's not obvious. So... I think Hackers was the first time... Or no, Sneakers. Sneakers was the first time I liked Ben Kingsley. Anyways. And the second reason, though, is because I feel like this actually ties into what I feel is one of the other predominant themes of Iron Man 3. Being in the shadows versus being in the light. Now, Stark is someone who's been in the light since before he was Iron Man. It's, it's part of his shtick. The celebrity glitz and glam thing. And that's been something that's been hammered in in basically every single film to date, including the Avengers. Killian... Nobody knew who the hell what Killian was. In fact, if Killian hadn't decided to go get his trophy wife, nobody would have known who he was then either. He would have just been some guy. It's only the fact that Iron Man has, excuse me, Stark, has this ridiculous memory that he even remembered who Killian or Maya were. So the twist kind of works because the whole point is, well, this is pageantry, like Stark called earlier. It's actually kind of brilliant in its own right. And I'd like to share something really quick here. I kind of called this. No, seriously. Now, I didn't call it completely, and I'll admit to that. What I actually presumed, what I wanted, what I, what I predicted, walking into Iron Man 3, was I predicted that the Mandarin had been the villain for, like, the entire series, that he'd been around since before Iron Man became a thing, and that he had been so quiet and so subtle, no one knew he existed. He was invisible. He was anon anonymous, in the background, quietly. And that's the part I called. Obviously, I didn't call the rest of it because I presumed that Ben Kingsley was the Mandarin and that's the direction they were going with. So I didn't call that. But I bring this up as well. One more thing to talk about on this point before we move on. Because I mentioned earlier that they give away the mystery very early. Remember that? That's crucial to the construction of the plot. Because what the story does is it reveals to the audience who's paying attention, here's the mystery. And then about 47 minutes in, I want to say, I actually wrote it down. Uh, hang on. Uh, I was right, 47 minutes. About 47 minutes into the film, it's like, aha, you know. And then at the, what, it, it kind of reveals the rest of exactly what's going on here. So anybody who wasn't paying attention earlier has now told the mystery, and the mystery's been unveiled, and now they have to go stop the Mandarin, who is, who is Killian is working for. Killian even calls him the master, right? But all of that was being done so that the audience presumed that there were no more mysteries to solve. It's a very classic form of misdirection. The entire point is to present basically three mysteries, only one of which is the real mystery. 
and instead try to focus the audience's attention on the two mysteries and either give them clues or hints so that they solve these two mysteries and forget the third one even exists. It's a very classic form of misdirection. Um, it's actually basically a con, a con game. You know, it, which, which, which cup is the ball in? The answer is none of them. That's the point, right? I'm not saying it's the best thing ever. I'm not. I'm just saying it doesn't bother me as much as I know it bothers a lot of other people. So, Maya is killed. That's a mistake. And we should probably talk about Killian. I haven't really talked about Killian yet. So, um, Guy Pierce is good. I want to give him credit where credit is due. He does a good job as Adrian Killian. But Adrian Killian is a boring, disinteresting villain. And I want to explain why I feel that way. It's because he's not a character. Give me some character points about Adrian Killian in this film. Um, that don't involve the word evil. <sighs> I suppose egotistical? We could add egotistical to that list, so that's something that's not evil. You get my point. There's no characterization there. There's nothing to flesh him out as an individual. Now, yes, this is a Marvel problem in general. This is a long-standing Marvel problem. There's a reason why Loki is one of the most beloved Marvel villains. It's because he got characterization. But Adrian Killian is, is a cardboard cutout of a villain, for the most part. Again, good acting by Guy Pierce, but that doesn't salvage it. There's another reason why I feel Maya would have worked better, because Maya has a bit of personality. She has the whole, I'm trying to do right thing. She has the, this is for the betterment of this thing, and you have this thing half figured out. And I could have fig She has the fixation on Stark, which Killian lacks. She has the actual good intentions, which Killian lacks. And she has a, a bit more charisma as a character, which Killian lacks. Killian instead comes across as someone who is sociopathically disconnected. And that's it. He's... The audience also does three things in short succession, and this is basically a form of narrative cheating. It's when a narrative does something to try and make a character hated by the audience. So he, um, he, he kills Maya. He kills his own person. He acts incredibly casual about just about everything that he's doing. He, he even monologues one of his own uh, allies, for God's sakes. And then he tells Pe Pepper Potts that she is going to be his trophy wife. So he is um, sadistic, evil, and a chauvinist pig. You get the point. All three of these things are done pretty much back to back to back, too, in order to make sure that the audience hates him, and for no other reason. There's no characterization there, if you follow me. And this is why I brought up the Maya thing earlier. I think if they'd gone forward, if she had been the Mandarin, if he was someone working with them and had extremists working, I think that that would have worked better if she was actually the big reveal. That reminds me of another thing, though. One of the things the film just kind of accepts is the fact that Killian just sort of is better with his extremists than anyone else is. He has far more control over it. He, he never overheats or overloads. He is constantly regulated properly. He can breathe fire you know, whatever. Moving on, moving on. So, then Rhodey is basically taken out of the battle. Okay, that kind of sucks. I made a note here that I wish Rhodey was more effective. Which is funny because almost immediately after that is a scene where he and Stark infiltrate the, the shipyard. And Rhodey's actually really, really awesome in that scene. That was great. I just want to say that. That was great, seeing Rhodey... <laughs> I, I, you, you shot the glass. I can't shoot the bulb. Nobody can shoot the bulb. <laughs> Immediately shoots the bulb. I'm sorry. Rhodey was great there. Moving on. So, <laughs> um, 
uh, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, there's a really great scene. <laughs> there's a really great scene. So Stark, go up, go. You know, the 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 shoot finally collapses on him. What is the range on that remote call thing, by the way? Eight hundred something miles, something like that. It's serious. Is he seriously calling that thing from? Like, that far away, whatever. Again, I'm just letting it go, whatever. But no, the great thing about that scene isn't how he beats the crap out of all those people with basically two pieces of the Iron Man suit, although that is also cool. No, the best part is when he goes to the final guy, and the guy's like, you know, I don't even like working through these people. They're just so weird. <laughs> that was good. I like that. Anyways. So, then he and Rhodey go off. And it's like, hey, you know, we have to we have to solve the president. We have to get up there because they're somehow controlling the, the Iron Patriot armor, and nobody's suspicious of the fact that Rhodey hasn't said a word since he's up there. So whatever, um, and how has his mask down? But whatever. Again, I'm sure there's no security when it comes to the president of the United States. You can see why I have a difficulty enjoying this film. I do enjoy this film. It's just it's riddled with flaws. So they're going to save him, and there's a really great scene where they call the VP. Now, what's funny is, I don't think, I, I, I noticed this before, but I was going to comment on it like it was a big deal until I rewatched this film and I realized how incredibly obvious it was. Because we see the vice president, and we see that the vice president's daughter is missing a leg. That's actually admittedly good. That is legitimately good. Because it shows, with that simple visual cue, it shows us the link between the vice president and Killian and the AIM group. Because... Duh, the vice president was trying to find some way to fix his daughter's leg, and extremis would be the solution, assuming it was properly fixed, right? I'm with that. That's cool. It also gives the vice president motive other than I want power, and I like that too. It's actually implied that the VP, for all of his you know, corruption, and he is an evil person, of course. I mean, he's Miguel Fuhrer. Of course he's evil. It, uh, it's implied that he... Um, he is more like, I'm willing to do this because you'll fix my daughter, rather than, you'll help me and I'll take over the country. And I do like that differing perspective. Now, then we have the skydiving scene. I have only one note on the skydiving scene in my notes here, and it's just the word YES in all caps. I love that scene. This is, I guess, my third, now, favorite scene in the entire film. For two reasons. First and foremost, it's really cool. And they actually did. You can tell. You can tell it's not CGI or whatever. Because they actually went out there with actual skydiving professionals and actually got a camera and actually filmed it, and it's awesome. Uh, they didn't film the whole thing, of course, but, you know, a decent chunk of it. But no, in addition to that awesomeness, which is very awesome, you know what makes it more awesome? The fact that Tony Stark has to, with a barely functional suit, save a bunch of people's lives. Any hero can punch a bad guy. A real hero can save the innocent. That is always a more difficult task. That is always going to be more of a problem and more of a, diff more of a hassle. And it's going to be harder to pull off properly. Because with a villain, you just have to worry about how hard you're hitting them and making sure you're hitting them in the right spot. But saving those people, that was difficult. That required skill and precision and execution. And he managed all of those. That's awesome. And that's Tony Stark right there, in my honest opinion. In fact, you'll notice all three of my favorite scenes in this film are all Tony Stark, you know, character moments. The moment of him opening up to pots, the moment of him taking on the, the mansion with, with the gear, and the moment of him saving everyone with the, with the suit. 
The scene is then ruined by the, 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 the truck that runs into the Iron Man suit. How did he not see that coming? Whatever, let's just move on from that. So, <clears throat> uh, oh, I also forgot to mention. So this is also the, uh, let's call this the feel-good moment. Because three things happen in short succession. He, st- he manages to escape and beats, beats the hell out of everyone on his way out. Rescues Rhodey, gets going. Uh, he kills Bald Evil Guy. Finally kills him, blasts a hole through his chest, which apparently he is not capable of regenerating from. If he was, the, airship ex- the airplane explosion probably finished it. So Bald Evil Guy's finally dead. Yay. He did a good job, the actor. Um, then he rescues a bunch of people. And then he manages to to home in on, and he and Rhodey go after. My point being, that's the feel good part of the film. It's like, all right, we have succeeded, we have accomplished. Now we're on the rise again. Now we have to go for the final battle. I don't actually have much to say about the final battle, but I do want to say the brilliance of the party protocol. In fact, if anything, it's weird they didn't implement it earlier. But I get it for the purpose of the narrative flow, because here's the catch. The party protocol from a filmmaking perspective allows you to have a final battle in which the good guys can take hits. Basically, that there's some sort of stakes. Let me put it to you this way. If you had a final battle where there's a bunch of people just constantly beating up things and none of them ever get injured, well, that's kind of boring as an Avengers 2, excuse me. But if you have a final battle where good guys are actually getting hurt or lost or, or stuff is happening, we have a little bit more drama involved. It might be artificial or fake drama, depending on the nature of who or what is destroyed, but it is still more than just we're invincible and wrecking our way through the enemies. Hence, the idea of all these remote-controlled suits being damaged and eventually destroyed through the course of this fight allows there to be some stakes involved and some drama. So I'm with that. But the second thing is way more important, and that's the fact that it gets to show off variety. This is something I wish Iron Man would do more of, and really has never done more of since. The idea of the fact that the Iron Man suits can do more than just and we see multiple different suits throughout the course of this battle, which all have different specialties and configurations, which can be used for a variety of utility, and that's awesome. I do wish the Hulkbuster armor went to better use, but then again, we do have Ultron, so whatever. Point being, we get to see each of the suits doing their own shtick, and that's great. The variety of it adds tremendously to it and also accurately describes Tony Stark's overall modus operandi. He's a tool user, and thus he has a variety of tools for a variety of situations, right? I mean, you look into someone's tool shed sometime. How many tools they got in there? Huh? For how many different types of Allen wrenches or sockets or whatever? I'm not a tool person. Now, then, well... Some stuff happens. I mean, I, as usual, I don't have much to say about combat sequences. I do want to comment on a couple of things. First of all, I kind of wish Pepper had maintained her having her powers. That would have been cool. Her fake death is dumb. That was not cool. And I really... I really feel like a something was missed with the finale here. Stark decides to detonate all of the, the fighters, or all of his shoots. I get that it's supposed to be a big moment that he's showing her, you know, the, the nature of this, but as I feel like I explained earlier, the solution to his problem was more complex than simply, I need to build or I need to not build. It was a more nuanced situation than that. And this kind of spits in the face of that by showing us that he is now choosing not to build to be with her, that I am Iron Man without the suit. Now there's a degree of sense to that, but there already was that. Again, remember, immediately after he came to that realization of the complexity, 
of the situation. He then went and infiltrated a place without a suit because he didn't need the suit. He had what he needed, resources and the brain, right? That's that's Tony Stark. He's got the Batman thing going on, right? So I feel like it's an unnecessary gesture that's just kind of wasteful, honestly. And, well, also made even worse by the fact that he then just makes more suits in everything he's in from this point onward. Suits, plural, by the way. Anywho, so they have the, the final thing, you know, the tech shop, I mentioned that. Um, he, he goes back and he saves the bots. That's awesome. I, I felt so bad. The bots, no. The dummy, you know, the hat, no. And then the film ends and ha-ha, he's been talking to uh, Banner this entire time. And Banner's been sleeping the entire time. <sighs> I didn't like that scene, by the way. I, I know that's a weird thing to point out, but I just didn't. I felt like there should be more of a natural camaraderie between Banner and Stark. And there is an Avengers, and there is an Avengers 2. So I don't know why there just kind of isn't in this film for some reason. I know it's just supposed to be a throwaway gag at the end of the film, but I think they could have done more with that is all I'm saying. That's all I got. Iron Man 3, net positive, I'd say. I'm not sure which one's next, but I'm pretty sure it's Thor 2, which I historically don't remember liking, so I guess we'll see what we get when we get there. I'll see you around, guys.